So hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today I'm here with Christopher Snowden, the lifestyle, uh, completely forgotten the title already. This Head of Lifestyle Economics. Head of Lifestyle Economics at the Institute for Economic Affairs, uh, author of Polemics, Killjoys, The Art of Suppression and The Spirit Level Delusion. Uh, Christopher, welcome to the show. Nice to be on. How are you doing? Yeah, not bad. I mean, as as people can hear, I, I have somewhat lost my voice. I've just been away in Austria for three weeks. So um, cigarettes, alcohol and screaming along to some of my favorite songs has uh, robbed me of my voice. So hopefully we'll get through this before it dies completely. I'm sure we will. I'll do most of the talking bit. Well, that's the plan anyway. Um, so one of the, the the first reason I came across you like a couple of years ago was um, your your book, The Spirit Level Delusion, because I'd read The Spirit Level. Um, oh, yeah. And then uh, I saw your, your answer to it and I was like, okay, this is real interesting because I find... I find the arguments that, that people make that like inequality is bad to be somewhat ridiculous because the, there is no way to not have some sort of inequality short of like literal totalitarianism. But yeah, something that really interests me at the minute is that um, I think there is a point at which inequality becomes really damaging to an economy um, it, it, because you get too many people stuck at at, at the bottom of the ladder with no way to climb out or uh, like with, without uh, the ideal amount of opportunity that we would want people to be able to have to like get beyond their, their starting place to, to, yeah. you know, strive for something better. And, and it seems to me that especially over the past couple of years, the UK for me at least looks like it's approaching this point where the, the inequality is becoming incredibly damaging to the economy rather than just being a fact of sort of reality. Um, do you think that's uh, an inaccurate assessment? Um, I don't know. I, I don't think it's correct. No. I mean, right, firstly, I need to say that a lot of people assume I wrote the spirit of delusion because I wanted to defend inequality or something. I didn't at all. I was just so outraged by their mis misuse of statistics. I felt it needed a rebuttal. And then having started writing about the statistics i thought well i need to say something about the the wider ar arguments you know um so that I, until then i hadn't really thought about income inequality at all really um and i'm not certainly not as much as they obviously do because they put you know they blame it on everything right they blame re low recycling rates infant mortality you know the lot um is all associated with inequality which I, hopefully anyone who's read my book will realize that is just not true However, it doesn't answer your question, which is, is inequality bad beyond a certain level? Um, I think, yeah, obviously it is. I mean, in theory, if one person had everything and everybody else had nothing, that would be terrible. And there must be some points at which things get quite bad before you get to that stage. So inequality in Brazil, for example, is probably too high. South Africa, I think, has the highest rate of inequality in the world. But my take on it really is that I'm much more interested in the causes of inequality rather than the supposed outcomes of it. So the spirit level is all about the supposed outcomes of inequality, which they never really come up with a very convincing kind of mechanism for. It's just that, well, people sense that society is unequal and that gives them, that makes them stress. And if you look at these monkeys who are stressed, they behave like this. And yeah, it's all pretty tenuous because, um, you don't, you know, it's not something that's in the atmosphere, inequality, certainly not at the levels they're looking at, because they're looking at the difference between like Sweden and and America, you know, and 
yeah, Sweden is relatively equal in terms of its income distribution, but you turn up in Stockholm, you don't get that impression at all. No. <laughs> you know? no. um, so it's not something I think that you, you, people really absorb. And I don't think you could go to a country and, and guess what its Gini coefficient is. So I'm interested in the causes of inequality. And I think there can be perfectly benign or even good causes of inequality, and there can be negative causes of inequality. So we take South Africa... You know, they've gone from apartheid, which is obviously bad, to having an incredibly corrupt government, which is obviously bad. And both of those things cause inequality. So, yes, inequality there is a symptom of a problem. But I think that's all it ever is, really, is a symptom of a problem. And it might, in some cases, not be a problem, because, as I say, there can be some good causes of inequality. So the UK, I think, is an example of that. Inequality in the 70s in the UK was pretty similar to what it is in, in Sweden, if not lower. And inequality rose quite a bit in the 1980s um, for various reasons. But one of the reasons was uh, all the rich people who had left the UK because of the very high tax rates started coming back. You know, in the 1970s, there were very few major you know, worldwide celebrities who lived in Britain. I think Elton John and Paul McCartney were about the only two of them. Um, you know, John Lennon was in New York, Ringo Starr was in L.A., uh, Michael Caine, David Bowie, Rolling Stones, all these people were, you know, Rolling Stones, exile on Main, Main Street. They went to France because the tax rate was so high in, in Britain. Right? That's how high the tax rates were. Um, you know, Taxman, the song by the Beatles, is a reflection of how how high the, the tax was. I think it was 83 percent for earned income and 98 percent for unearned income. Um, so the effect of having a load of rich people move back into Britain and indeed have a load of rich people who'd never lived in Britain suddenly decide London's the kind of place they want to live meant that inequality rose. I don't think that's a bad thing that you suddenly had a lot of wealthy people knocking around London. London is an incredibly unequal um, city, but that is not necessarily a bad thing. I don't think it would necessarily be a good thing if all these rich people left, you know, and took their money with them. So I think you need to be very careful when you, you know, this just saying inequality per se is bad and the higher it gets the worse things are and the lower it gets the better things are is is a wrong the wrong way of looking at it inequality can absolutely be a symptom of problems in society i suspect that inequality in america which is just keeps seem to tick and tick and tick up all the time uh, I, I think that's a, a, a symptom of a dysfunctional economy to some extent in britain to answer your question i mean inequality hasn't really risen since the early 90s you know there was this significant rise in the 80s um but it's been pretty flat ever since and although various newspaper columnists will keep talking about spiraling inequality and so on under any measure it's not it's just not true um there are various different ways of measuring inequality um and i'm talking here specifically about income inequality um, and it hasn't gone up really for 30 years. It's not particularly high by international standards. In fact, it's relatively low by international standards. It's a bit higher than average by European standards, but still not off the scale. Um, and if you look at wealth inequality, which people generally don't bother mentioning, but strikes me as being at least as important to the spirit level hypothesis and income inequality, uh, UK is actually quite low down. And it's weirdly, it's countries like Denmark, which are really quite high up. And that's a reflection partly of the fact that we tend to be a homeowning democracy and a lot of the European countries rent. And so most people's wealth will be um, overwhelmingly their, their homes. And I think we probably are more likely to own shares in this country than a lot of places. But yeah, it, it, well, whether you look at it as wealth inequality or income inequality, UK is not particularly off the scale. There are lots of problems with the with the um, you know, British economy. There are undoubtedly sources of um, you know 
undeserved income and cronyism. We've seen that with the whole PPE debacle. Um, but these things are all, you know, these things are bad anyway. This is the thing about the inequality debate. To me, it gets you off the subject, right? So that South African example, apartheid's bad. There's no place for it in, in civilized society. Corruption is bad. There's no place for it in society. We know that already, right? Yeah. If we get rid of these things, it'll probably reduce inequality. That's fine as a side effect. But all the things that drive inequality, we kind of know are bad to start with. You know, if it's about educational disparities, poor standards of education, poor standards of health, we know these things are bad. We don't need someone to come along and say, oh, inequality means you're you know, less likely to put your recycling out. It's 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 irrelevant. Yeah, I'm just sorry. I'm just pulling up um, this for, for people, um, what you were saying about the, the, the Gini coefficient, which is... I did not realize that since 91, it's basically the same. Yeah. 91, 1990, it was 34%, 34.9%. And 2020-21 was 34.4%. So that's really interesting. Because I would have imagined it like that. To be fair, this isn't really showing 21, 22. Because this is what, this is the, the point that, that concerns me. is like the with with inflation especially of just like day-to-day -day goods um feels like the people at the bottom are going to be the ones who are struggling as a result of the, the the economy that we're currently in and then the yeah the rise in things like food bank use and stuff like it makes me makes me concerned and i don't understand sometimes why that's not a concern for governments because like once there's too many people with nothing to lose, then it's, you know, that's when governments topple um, yeah. at the ballot box or in a more extreme form. But I don't think we're going to see that in Britain. We're all too apathetic. But um, do, you, do you think that, like, do you think the governments give any, any thought to, the, to that, that idea? Or is, is the idea that they could be ousted very rapidly, not really on their, on their radar as a result of, yeah, people just feeling desperate? Well, I, I think they probably realise they're going to get kicked out in the next election regardless. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I don't know what politicians think, you know, and I don't know how cynical they are. Um, but, you know, you could if they were very cynical, they might say, well, these are people who are never going to vote for us anyway, and a lot of them don't vote to start with. So let's look after the people who are the, you know, Worcester woman and Mondeo man and what have you. Yeah. Yeah, you could well be right. So, like, what, what what would you identify as the biggest like issue with the British economy then? If it's not if it's not this the the inequality that the that a lot on the left are screaming about, like, what do you think the the biggest problem we have at the minute is? Well, I mean, the biggest problem right now, obviously, is inflation. Um, I think structurally, certainly for the last fifteen years or so, the problem has been debt, low interest rates. Um, money printing uh, i've got my fan on can you hear that should i turn it off no it's all good it's okay it's got my got my heater on to try and get you warm um yeah i mean structurally and it's not just britain but you know most of the western world has been living in a kind of an illusion of debt fueled i was going to say prosperity it hasn't even been prosperity it's been debt fueled sort of clinging on and we we keep on borrowing and printing more and more money on the basis it's going to stimulate the economy. And it clearly hasn't stimulated the economy. And the latest bout of money printing during COVID has led to very high inflation um, all over the place. 
And so the chickens have come home to roost on that one. I mean, anyone who thought that we, not just us, but the European Central Bank and the Federal Reserve could, you know, could get away with printing the unbelievable eye-watering sums of money that it has done without leading to inflation um, is you know, very foolish. So I'd like to think people have at least learned that lesson. I don't think they, they've even learned that because everyone seems to go, oh, well, this is just gas prices. It's just the war in Ukraine, you know, which obviously haven't helped and have exacerbated it. But um, as have the, you know, the lockdowns and the supply side problems, you know, the, the supply chain problems associated with that. But no, overwhelmingly, it's it's the money printing. So, you know, all this borrowing is now very predictably led to high interest payments, you know. Uh, the era of cheap money was always an illusion that we're always going to have to not pay it back, but pay the interest on it. And so now the government's looking at it's over a hundred billion pounds this year, just on, just on servicing the debt. Um, so yeah, we got a high debt, um, now high inflation for the time being, low productivity, low growth economy. And we would have so fewer problems if we just had decent growth. This is why, you know, although Liz Truss was a complete disaster and she didn't have any real policies, you know, the, the basic premise that the only choice here is to go for growth was absolutely true because people aren't going to put up with public spending cuts and they're not really going to put up with higher taxes. So the only thing you can do is grow the economy. And if you've got the economy growing at three or four percent, all the other problems fade away. The doctors and the nurses can have their pay rises. We can spend more money on this, more money on that. But we, we, we just haven't had that kind of growth. Um, it's shocking how flat, you know, overall the economy has been since 2008 and wages similarly. It's uh, been more than the last decade. Um, and I don't put that down to, you know, austerity or the, the Tories per se. I think it's it's due to a lot of things. Um, but, but one of them is, um, is, you know, the era, I really think the era of low interest rates if it does die, it would be a good thing. I think the interest rates have caused so many problems people aren't aware of, and it's had a real drain on on productivity. Um, there's a very good book by Edward Chancellor about this called The Price of Time. Um, but yeah, low interest rates have been a real curse. They have not done what they were supposed to do, which is stimulate the economy. They've actually done the opposite. Mm. Like, I've been looking at, at, and I've been talking about this as well, I'm looking at the way, a way, yeah, the central bankers and economists and financial journalists of the world have, have, were just, it seems like they were blindsided by this idea that, that printing an insane amount of money would cause inflation, right? And I, to this day, get furious every time I see it happen. Because like, I remember my 15-year-old history lessons about the Weimar Republic. Like, yeah. I remember it. And it's like, how are these people getting paid? Like far larger sums of money to to look after, or you know, delineate the monetary policy of our nation and and critique it and and write about it and um, discuss it. Like how have all of them had such levels of hubris that they can both have ignored this idea that it was even, like the idea it was even possible that this might happen as a result, and then to just sort of wash their hands of the policy essentially or not even just move on as if they had no contribution to this whatsoever like do you think there'll be any like day of reckoning for the for no not for really I, I think it's i think it's more likely than not that they'll they'll lower interest rates at the first sign of inflation coming down and try and get the show back on the road there's too many people completely reliant now on low interest rates you've got anyone who's bought a house in the last few years for a start doesn't want interest rates to go up 
Um, a lot of people should never have been given mortgages, in my opinion, because it seems like they're, they're completely in, incapable of um, paying back the money if interest rates are anything like historic norms. And there are masses of businesses that are hugely over over leveraged. Um, they've been engaging in in mergers. These companies are not particularly profitable, but they can just about pay their interest payments, if not the their debt, because interest rates are low. You start putting interest rates up to five or six percent which would be really the minimum they would be if you were serious about tackling inflation. And suddenly people can't afford to pay their mortgages. Businesses can't afford to pay their uh, interest payments. The businesses go out, de- go out of business. People lose their jobs. People lose their houses. There's a house price crash. Uh, in actual fact, uh, that's really what the economy needs. If we were being you know, really objective about it, we need ineffective, unprofitable businesses to go bust so that the people who work for them to, can go work for a more profitable and dynamic business. We need a house price crash because house prices are insanely high and a whole generation is priced out of buying them. But these things obviously come with short-term pain for a lot of people. And one of the characteristics of the economy of the last 15 years is nobody wants to take any short-term pain. And so every time there's any kind of problem, and we've had some big problems. We had the financial crisis, which was massive. We had COVID, which was massive. But we've had other things along the way. You know, did we really need to start printing loads of money just because of the Brexit vote? Yeah, I mean, markets were shaken a bit by the Brexit vote. But I mean, did we really need to have a massive stimulus package just to deal, not even with leaving the EU, just with the vote, you know? So it became very quickly, because inflation didn't come about after the initial bout of quantitative easing in 2009, People started getting complacent, like you say, they got complacent and, and they started thinking, well, maybe this time is different. And they convinced themselves that the various reasons uh, they were particularly inspired by Japan, which has been in this kind of deflationary slump for decades and seems to print money almost <laughs> with immunity. Um, they convinced themselves that we were just in a deflationary period. Um, imports from China were keeping prices down and the classic mistake was made of the, you know, this is going to go on forever. This is a new paradigm. Things have changed. We can rip, rip up the economics textbooks. And of course you can't, you know, these things always come to a, 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 t- a terrible end. Um, but I, I do think they will probably try and get the low interest, you know, um, high borrowing show back on the road because so many people depend on it, including really the, the government in a way, um, you know, the government can't, afford to be spending 250 billion pounds on debt interest payments which is what they could be looking at if we can't you know if we have high interest rates yeah yeah well yeah that, that would that would cripple them in in yeah probably a matter of weeks um they the what you're saying is is i think probably almost inevitably true that we uh, that there is like this this crash coming from somewhere like it's it's like a big bubble that's been blown up and up and up and up and up and it's like there is no way to slowly let the air out of it um in in a lot of senses well there is and unfortunately that's the trouble there is because so long as you keep borrowing money you can keep the economy on life support oh um yeah, and there hasn't really been a crowd okay we have obviously the, the the massive drop in gdp during covid but we haven't had a proper recession since 2008 2009 and you know recessions are not a ba- you know not a thoroughly bad thing you know there is such a thing as creative destruction and recessions do come along periodically there is such a thing as a business cycle and although they're very painful they do have the effect of k- 
killing off you know unproductive businesses and uh, allowing new ones to to prosper and we we've stopped that happening it's a bit like when you when you um prevent forest fires ha- from happening you know forest fires are actually a natural event and they are required to stop forests getting too overgrown uh, and when mankind comes in there and and you know stops them happening then you just end up with a bigger forest fire um and uh, you know, we think eventually when everybody completely runs out of the ability to, to borrow money then i guess that crash will happen but you can prolong things for a very long time there's a lot of ruin in the nation and with this system of quantitative easing and, and, and endless borrowing you can put off the inevitable for i don't know how many years i don't think we're going to see a full-blown crash in the next year for various reasons um the stock market is nearly at a record high which is insane you know um i just think somehow we'll keep staggering on i think we're looking at this a slow horrible decline rather than a, a cataclysmic you know recession from which we could actually emerge fairly well mm. yeah i think I guess it really depends on the issue there with the, like you said, the stock market's like a, an almost all-time high. You see, this is just the, the there's all the extra money floating around just being like pumped into it to keep it afloat. And like my, my question constantly remains is like, how, how long can you continue to pump the money into the economy that continues to end up in that like asset bubble that gets created? Mm-hmm like devaluing the money that the ordinary people have on the ground. And then eventually people are just going to stop spending. And I think that's, what's going to, going to cause things to really go bad because it'll be like, if inflation continues, if they, if they don't, if, if nothing gets done about it, um, then I think we have to, that inevitably we reach a point where people just like, can't afford to do stuff on the same level. And then, yeah, you know, then that that's what causes the. Well, normally, I think at this stage, that would have already happened. We're in a very weird time, and things are very unpredictable at the moment because we've only, for a lot of people, it's only been less than a year that they've started feeling life's gone back to normal. You know, a year ago, we were still at the height of the Omicron wave. Um, now, I basically ignored COVID from you know the previous summer, but a lot of people were still terrified of it up until February, March. 2022 um and the reality is because of all the furloughs and cash grants and just being locked up and being unable to spend money a lot of people actually have a lot of money in the bank still i'm not saying everybody by any means but actually a lot of people do have quite a bit of money pensioners have been completely protected from the cost of living crisis right they've got the triple lock so their pensions are going up 10 11 percent this year and if you go around the pubs when it's usually pubs are a pretty good place to 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 start if you want to see this you know the the um the start of a recession from what i've seen anyway around my neck of the woods and in london they're still heaving and um, a lot of them are heaving in the middle of the day with pensioners <laughs> who are still seem to have plenty of money and it's not just pensioners it's you know all the people who for two years or so were they didn't have to pay to commute they wouldn't weren't able to go on holiday so they save money from that they save money in all sorts of different ways because they were at home and they for the last year have been itching to spend that money and go on those holidays and go to the cinema and go to the pub and all, all the other things they want to do and they've been making it up for lost time so although like normally in this this um this uh, point in the in the business cycle when you've got inflation 
going up. Everyone's predicting a recession. We're probably already in recession and so on. We really should have been in a recession last year. It was kind of a surprise that we kept staying out of recession. Um, but we did. And I think that's because people were still spending the, this little you know, stack of money that they they built up and they were very keen to spend it because they were making it for lost time. So it's unusual in that respect. And you can't, you can't now I can't tell how that's going to end. I don't know how much of this money people have still got and what their propensity to spend it is, given that the, all the economic you know, out forecasts are so are so gloomy. I really don't know. It'd be very interesting to see. But my suspicion is that once people start getting their gas bills and their electricity bills, and once people that you know on a fixed term mortgage that ends and they've got to get a new mortgage, that's when people will suddenly realise they've not got enough. They haven't got as much money to spend as they thought. At that point, you might assume in, I don't know, six months time or so, sometime this year anyway, that spending will go down and then GDP will go down and then you have a full-blown recession, um, which incidentally will actually help bring inflation down. Um, that's usually what happens with inflation, if we're honest about it. I mean, that's basically the effect of interest rates, as far as I can see. You put interest rates up so high that you have a recession, and a recession gets rid of inflation. That's basically how it happens, from what I can tell, most of the time. Um, so that would be, if I'm going to make a prediction, as I say, things are very unpredictable. I, I, I think that that's what will happen. People suddenly feel the pinch in, in a few months' time. They'll stop spending so much, and then GDP will fall. But how much and how much it spirals, I, I don't know. I think if inflation falls down to four or five percent by the end of the year, it could be fairly it could be fairly shallow, and we we could be okay actually coming into next year. Yeah, I really don't know. I wouldn't put money on it. No, no, I definitely wouldn't be putting money on it. Um, so, like one of one of the things that people point to as the cause of of like a the the current economic problems we're seeing or like inequality gen generally is is capitalism they're like it's capitalism and quite a lot of the time i would make the case that what we what we currently exist in does not really count as a capitalist economy um because well, for many reasons, but we can get into that. But like, would would you describe what we currently live under as 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 a capitalist system? <clears throat> well, obviously, elements of it are. You know, if you want to set up a business, you you can you can do that. Uh, you know, you can own private property. I mean, it's a mixed economy, really, is what it is, um, and it's moving more and more towards a socialist economy, insofar as the government is, you know, taking more and more of our of, of GDP. Um, so you know it's spending something like forty percent of GDP now. It's a it's a lot. Um, large swathes of the economy are under direct control of the government and have been for a very long time. Most obviously health, um, but also education and social security, and they are a huge part of the economy, a huge part of government spending. And you know, with the exception of some people who have private health care and some people who kids send their kids to private schools, you know, these are state owned and state run. Um, so yeah, I mean, our health system in particular is extremely socialist. It's a, it's a relic of the 1940s, you know, socialist labor government. Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, large parts of it are, if not, you know, very free market, then certainly capitalist in the, in the normal sense of the word. And then you have things that are kind of 
you know, you have the railways, you know, for example, you have these things that are neither one thing nor the other, really. You know, you had a botched privatization with the railways, so there isn't any, really any competition there, and the government keeps subsidizing it. And the government is, you know, running the negotiations with this rail strike for some reason. I don't understand why. I don't understand why the the the, the rail bosses aren't the ones who are doing negotiations. So, yeah, you've got things that are supposed to be private, but in effect are. I don't know. I mean, the worst of both worlds, really. Um, then you have some of the utilities. You know, I don't know. I don't know enough about the evidence on the privatization of some of these natural monopolies to, to say whether they've got better or worse or or what. But um, you know, the energy price cap. You know, and the, the the yeah, these these companies are technically private, but I mean, the government has so much control over what they do. There's all the regulators of off gem and off what and and so on that um, they they they're pretty much unrecognizable from a a genuine capitalist endeavor. On the other hand, they are basically monopolies. So you know, even someone like me would say, well, there's got to be room for some regulation there. Otherwise, we'll just get completely fleeced. So, no, I mean, we have a mixed economy, I think, in answer to your question, mm-hmm. as does as does nearly every country. You know, but th- there are different gradients of that, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously. Um, what the part that, that sort of concerns me is the is the sort of this other category that you've you've identified in many in many areas. You have like a a government sponsored monopoly. So it becomes a, it looks to me at least like it becomes just like a, a transfer of wealth from, from the taxpayer to the, to private industry, but with no qualification or, or need to be efficient in any sense. And, and it seems to like, we're, we're building all of these industries where like people are just getting used to being handed money by, by the government. And it's, really really worries me but like the part that worries me more is that it's being done by the party who are meant to have like the most libertarian wing like the the, you'd expect some of the the more free market people in the conservative party to be like hang on a second lads like we are building like an incredibly state-sponsored economy that like not even to mention the levels of corruption and and stuff that go into into a lot of the handing out of these contracts and and the yeah the the connections to like you know friends family donors that sort of thing is like really really concerning for me like why why do you think it is that 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 sort of the the erg wing for all their all their vilification by by people like why have they not had something to say about this um well, I mean, the I don't know. I guess they feel they have bigger fish to fry. I suppose would be the answer, and they probably don't really understand it a lot of the time. I mean, I I certainly don't. I mean, you see these stories in private eye or whatever about these apparently quite dodgy contracts going out to people, and I dare say there's some truth in it. On the other hand, you know, whenever I know about a story personally that private eye covers, I always find they've got it completely wrong. So I don't know whether to believe them or not. Um, this PPE thing I mentioned before seems to be, you know, have some pretty cut and dried examples of, of corruption, but then you could say people were in a huge hurry at that point. And, you know, maybe this is not what happens all the time. I, I don't know. I mean, I, if I had more time and I did other things, I would like to dig more into these, these kind of affairs. I just don't, unfortunately. And I guess the EIG feels the same way. 
Um, it's not that I'm not interested at all. It's just like, you know, it's not really within my my my, my remit. Um, I'm very interested, for example, why it is that Deloitte always seems to get contracts thing. Yeah, it's always like KPMG and Deloitte and these. What's the other one? Um, Circo. Circo. It's all, I mean, they, no matter what it is the government wants doing. I'm all in favor of government outsourcing things to the private sector. Obviously, don't get me wrong. But it's always the same big companies that no one really understands what they do. And so they seem to be experts on, on the one hand, kind of building railways, but also on supplying face masks all of a sudden, you know. Um, so it's, it smacks of cronyism to me. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of competition in the tendering. But what do I know? I'm nothing, really. Um, but yeah, look, I'm sure there is cronyism without a shadow of a doubt. The scale of it, I don't know. And what to do about it, I don't really know, unfortunately. I just hope it's not, you know, in the great scheme of things, I hope it's not a big part of that 40% of GDP that the government is consuming. And I, I don't think it will be in in practice. I'm more interested, I guess, in like how do we get these huge sums of money down and how do we get these public services working better for us you know i'll tell you what one of the things i'd love to get your take on actually is um there is a, a, a certain class of people or a certain group of people especially in the media who are quite vocal who seem to believe that all of our problems could be solved immediately if suddenly we were back in the european union and yeah. i cannot get my head around this because to me, that is an absolute abdication of the responsibility that we have as citizens to elect a government to do some like good things for the country, right? Why do you think it is that people believe so, so stringently that the EU is the so solution to our problems instead of just electing a better government? I think you have to look at it as a kind of psychological phenomenon more than anything. It strikes me that in the years I've been on Twitter, there have been two events that have molded people's character permanently, and they're never going to let it go. The first was Brexit, and the second was COVID. And although most people have kind of put both of those things more or less behind them now, there are some people for whom it is just an ingrained part of their identity, and they bring it up in any context all the time to anyone who's interested, which isn't many people, but they, they do it. You know, this is why people still have FBPE in their hashtag. You know, they've got the hashtag in their profile. It's been six and a half years now, you know, since the referendum, it's been three years since we left. These people never follow back, you know, it's follow back pro EU. They never follow back. They must've noticed that by now. How long are you going to keep that hashtag there? Um, and with the COVID thing, you get the people who basically were anti-lockdown who are now anti-vax and they want to keep they want to keep it going forever. And they've, they've been enjoying it recently because there's been a little bit of news about COVID in, you know, in, in the media. And there's a, a handful of people who are always going to be completely neurotic about it and carry on talking about COVID in 20 years time um, and still wearing face masks. These things are struck me as being a permanent part of their identity now and they won't shut up about it. Um, and some of them have became sort of Twitter famous from doing it. It's their thing, right? So the people who people suddenly started paying attention to because of COVID and because of Brexit, they what else are they going to talk about? Some of them are trying to pivot to other things, like the anti-lockdown people pivoted to the anti-vax thing. It's all basically still the same audience. So I, I think it's a psychological thing, really, more than anything else. Um, 
I guess there's a lot of people who spent so long saying that Brexit was going to be an absolute disaster that they're very keen to, you know, pick up on any any potential bad news about the EU leaving the sorry Britain leaving the European Union and want to show that they were right about this I guess but I think mainly it's just an identity thing they're in a club full of people they all say the same stuff and that's what Twitter does it, it creates t- tribes I mean tribes have always been around but I mean Twitter really makes it easy yeah yeah no it definitely does um like the I just I can't some of the especially the brexit stuff I just I can't get my head around like Especially what's his face, Femi, who who spent yeah. who spent like the entire referendum campaign and years afterwards going around the entire country asking the Brexiteers about why they voted for it, and he still seems to have no conception whatsoever as to why they might want that. And yeah, <laughs> it, it's, it's weird, isn't it? Yeah. Give me one reason you voted Brexit. You know, and people have given him quite a few reasons now. <laughs> you know, and you might not agree with them. People don't really need to give any reason other than they want to make their own laws in this country, you know. And regardless of whether you know we've got rid of the tax on tampons or something, that's really the only reason you need to give, or you want to control your borders. Not that we're really doing that, but you know, I mean, these are yeah, these are perfectly valid reasons in and of themselves. There are other examples I can give. I can also give examples of of, of bad things that have happened since Brexit. Um, but you wrote a whole book about this, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, the book what was, was that about? The book was mainly about how I thought um, we needed to regulate the way political advertising was used because I felt it was way more powerful than people believed in in its um, ability to shape a narrative or at least like put into focus the things that will be discussed. And I felt that the Brexit issue was this perfect wedge thing that people were able to exploit, like dark ads and 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 stuff to like set talking points in secret that were being like blasted out to millions of people. And then all of a sudden everyone's like, why is everyone talking about Turkey joining the EU? Is because there was like ads being like blasted at people nonstop. And I was like, well, like this, this is a really insidious way of like pumping ideas into the population without it being seen. And I thought that was really dangerous. Like, I'm not sure if it actually affected the vote in the end, like whether it like without that power, it would have changed it. But I felt like we needed to regulate that and I felt that Brexit was the perfect example. And I also thought we'd probably end up getting some very, very extreme um, neoliberal policies that I was not a fan of as a result of the chaos created by... Oh, you didn't need to worry about that. (laughs) Well, I mean, it sort of remains to be seen. I I sort of said that we'd we'd end up seeing a lot of privatisation and a lot of outsourcing um, to... In my my opinion, at least, the detriment of the the services that would be that would be further privatized and outsourced, like things like the the NHS, because I didn't believe they would do it in a way that was based on creating better public services. I believed it would be done in a way to enrich a lot of the people who were very in favor of Brexit, like they're very entitled to be. But I felt that they would exploit it, and I think we're kind of seeing that a bit. I think COVID showed us that. I mean, like you said, maybe that's not how it always runs, but that was at least my my feeling about it, and so that's what the book was about. But why why would they need Brexit to do that? Um, because uh, it's my belief that you don't get that sort of massive change in public policy without some sort of shock to an economy or a society. That the 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 chaos created by some big event 
can be exploited to get pushed through policies that would normally not be accepted. The shock doctrine. Exactly, the shock doctrine. That was but boring. it hasn't happened. I don't think it will. I mean, if anything, we certainly if Johnson stayed in charge, we would have had a more, even more deregist economy than ever. Um, obviously, Liz Truss would have given you some shocks if she stuck around, I guess. And Rishi seems happy just doing absolutely nothing for a couple of years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it remains to be seen how it plays out. But I mean, the, 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 the way we've responded in, in terms of like, yeah, even just the money printing, I don't think that would have been possible if there hadn't been that sort of like wobble from the markets and people are going, oh crap, the thing's going to collapse. And it's like, <gasps> and then they're like, oh, well, we're going to have to do this thing where we print loads of extra money. And the same thing happened with COVID. They go, oh, we're going to have to do this thing because, you know, the only way to survive this is to print loads of money. Well, yeah, but like I say, the Fed did exactly, the Fed did it even more than we did. Oh, yeah. Whole, you know, the whole Build Back Better um, act. I don't remember them building like two anything. Trillion, two trillion dollars of printed money. The ECB, European Central Bank, had negative interest rates until a few months ago and printed a massive load of money. So no, I don't think you can pin that one on, no. on Brexit. But then I would I would argue that 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 all of these um institutions that you've mentioned, you could even mention the the IMF as well. Like they all they're all bathed in the same economic ideology of of like of milton friedman who said the exact same thing about like needing a shock to 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 get people to accept policies that would never otherwise be be done so yeah I mean, but they're not they're not exactly using friedmanized economics <laughs> i mean they're using i'm not even going to try and blame keynes for it because it's not i mean it's not keynes wouldn't agree with that either it's just some kind of weird perverted version of neo-keynesianism it's Richard Murphyism, really. You know, we've been effectively practicing, you know, MMT for the last decade or more. Yeah. So no, I don't think Freeman would be very happy with it. And I, I read that book by Naomi Klein. I think it's one of the most dishonest books I've ever read in my life. Um, really? There's a good. There's a good review of it by who's it? Johan Norberg. It's worth checking out. But I mean, just um, I never wrote about it myself, but she basically tries to. Well, she she implies that somehow the UK started the Falklands War. I mean, her hypothesis doesn't really work unless we did somehow trigger the Falklands War, because she says that was the shock that got Margaret Thatcher, you know, made her more popular, and then she was able to do all this kind of stuff. Actually, she my, was getting more. My understanding wasn't that that in that the book wasn't wasn't that like that Britain had specifically started the Falklands War. And I think the whole hypothesis of the book is that, like, yeah, the shock needs to happen, but that doesn't need to be like one that's like. But it wasn't really. A, I mean, it wasn't a shock in that sense. Well, yeah, but I mean, the idea of the book is that these people kind of deliberately create these shocks and then exploit them, right? And in some senses, yeah, but I don't. I don't think that's in every sense. Like, there's a lot. And of each, yeah, and then mostly it's about Iraq, isn't it? The main, the last chapter is all about Iraq, and she she fails to mention having introduced Milton Freeman in the first few pages, that he was totally against the Iraq war. <laughs> and I mean, the only, the only example that she gives, I can remember that kind of vaguely makes sense is, is, um, is Chile, mm. um, where very unusually you had a dictator who believed in free market economics rather than socialism. And actually, you know, from an economic point of view, Chile's done really well as a result, whereas all the socialist um, dictatorships have been a complete, fiasco but yeah it's true that you know the chicago boys did advise uh pinochet on what to do um and 
you know, why not? I mean, her next book, I think, was all about uh, climate change. And it was called This Changes Everything. And it was her doing exactly what she criticized everybody else for, which is capitalizing on a on a major shock to try and introduce transformational economic policies. She's going, oh, well, because global warming's come in, this literally changed everything, and we need to have a Marxist economy. It's like, okay, well, you know, mm-hmm. position, heal, heal thyself. But yeah, check out that Johan Norberg uh, review, because I thought, I thought it was... Uh, no, I definitely will. Um, anyway, so the, the last thing I wanted to talk to you about, and sort of uh, leading somewhat on from, from Friedman and, and whatnot, is the your sort of heavy critique of the nanny state. Um, so libertarianism isn't something that's like discussed or at least like not called that somewhat like libertarian as, as such in, in the UK, especially compared to maybe like America where it's quite a, quite a widely known ideology. Yeah. Why, why is it that you believe that Britain has become a nanny state? Like, is, is there something really specific you can point to? That's a very good question, which I've thought about uh, from time to time myself. I, I don't have an easy answer to that one. Um, and it's not just Britain. It's it's most of the, the Western world. And it's particularly English-speaking countries, and particularly, as to be said, uh, countries which have a kind of history of Protestantism. Um, and I think it's like a puritanical bit. element too? Yeah. Well, yeah, basically, yeah. I mean, you'll notice uh, even within Europe, the the Catholic countries of the South are more laid back about drinking for example uh, but also smoking and most things really um than the more uptight countries of the uk scandinavia uh ireland ireland obviously the republic is not protestant but that's kind of the exception there um that there there are various theories i mean some people have said that you know the the reason that those countries plus america plus australia plus new zealand you know, basically the, the Anglosphere plus Scandinavia, really. They all either had prohibition or they got very close to having prohibition. New Zealand had five prohibition referendums um, around the time of the First World War, lost them all, or the prohibitionists lost them all by a very, very narrow margin. Australia avoided prohibition, but they got instead 6 p.m. closing time in pubs for decades. 6 p.m.? Um, yeah. So you really had to drink quickly after work. So <laughs> get something out of that so yeah they're, they're they're all very uptight about alcohol and to this day scandinavia has really tight restrictions on on drinking uh scotland is in the process of you know, going back to that kind of temperance thing now trying to banning out uh, trying to ban alcohol advertising it's probably minimum pricing it's a big thing of nicholas sturgeon's to clamp down on booze um and it's notable that those countries the ones that either had prohibition or, or were very tempted by prohibition have tended to be more nanny state when it comes to smoking vaping gambling to some extent food control you know the anti-obesity thing the sugar taxes stuff like that they tend to come from the english-speaking world not always but they, they tend to and then they often spread to um to other places via the world health organization which is largely controlled by english-speaking countries on on the nanny state stuff um so yeah why did why did you why why is i mean the question is why is labor and, and the tories both equally keen on this stuff which they are really you know labor and then tony blair got a bit of reputation of being nanny state because he was the first guy really to do it blair's thing which we never really had well, not for a very long time before was you know if I don't like something, I'm going to ban it. <laughs> Attitude, yeah. Had that with fox hunting, had that with smoking in pubs. Um, he was more liberal, to be fair, on alcohol and gambling. Um, 
which which is interesting. But by, by, by the time he got to his third term, the the liberalisation was gone. In fact, that's why I voted Blair the first two times because he seemed much more libertarian than the Tories, which he was. To be fair, he really was. And then the Tories come in and you know say we're going to have a bonfire regulation and been slagging off Blair and Brown for years for being nanny state. And then they immediately do a whole raft of nanny state measures, the display ban for tobacco, plain packaging for tobacco, the sugar tax. They haven't done much with booze, but everything else they've, they've had to go out. They're looking at clamping down now on, on gambling. They were never keen on Blair's gambling reforms in the first place. And now Wes Streeting says if Labour are going to get in, they're going to consult on banning the sale of cigarettes completely. So, you know, there's this kind of cross-party consensus on nanny state regulation. If you want me to hazard a guess at why it happens, I think it's because a lot of these politicians don't really have a, a big vision. They don't really know what to do about the economy and public services. This nanny state stuff is very cheap to introduce. It's popular with, you know, a certain dinner party set hmm. um it's not overly unpopular with other people to the point they're actually going to change who they vote for very often about it or, or get in a coach and march down to uh march around parliament about it so it, people find it annoying but not to the point that they're going to have a revolution about it right uh and you get public health ministers who are usually pretty obscure people when they take the job and they get a lot of publicity out of it I know from experience on going on radio shows all the time that you will get a lot of people calling in <laughs> if uh, you talk about are we should we ban smoking in parks or something like that, right? You would get loads of people ringing up, cranks from both sides, and um, it, it fills airtime. So the media quite like it. Politicians tend to like it because they can make a name for themselves and say, well, we haven't done anything else, but at least we've done this. You know, <laughs> like Rishi today coming out saying we're going to ban we're going to ban plastic plates. Yeah, great. <laughs> can we get some nuclear power stations built now no, we'll put that on ice yeah. mm -hmm. so it's um it, you know it, it's it's clown clown show politics really for political pygmies oh like it seems to me a lot of the time as well it's kind of uh, similar to, to to what we started with with the the spirit level delusion where people want to talk about this symptom like inequality instead of talking about the causes like that mm. um yeah like for example like alcohol or drug abuse is like led by um yeah mental health problems and uh, in some yeah. senses like ingrained poverty that's like in in areas of the uk that could probably do with some serious investment and instead of like talking about those things they go oh well we'll just like ban the alcohol and then you treat people like or yeah that's a drugs. very good that's very well put because that's exactly what the issue is and ever since the government came obsessed with health inequalities 20 years ago and more recently leveling up all the nanny state people have been using the rhetoric of health inequalities and leveling up to say basically we need to clamp down on you know the the unhealthy behavior of northerners essentially is what it comes down to uh, i mean the rhetoric of health inequalities is never about let's make sure that we have enough GPs per thousand people in the most deprived areas as the least deprived areas. That's genuine inequality the government could and should do something about. Yeah. It's just about, well, working class people are more likely to smoke than 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 posh people. You know, the health inequalities is generally speaking just used as an excuse to impose the tastes and preferences of middle class people onto ordinary people. Mm -hmm. And you like you say, it doesn't it doesn't solve the problem, right? So 
it's been understood for a very long time that poor people are, despite the cost, more likely to smoke, more likely if they drink to drink heavily, and and certainly more likely to suffer alcohol-related harm if they if they drink, more likely to be obese. And very few people really bother to ask why that is. I mean, there's sometimes an implicit message that basically these people are ignorant and they need to be educated, which I don't think is true. Um, what it is really, I mean, it all well explained it very well in the road to Wigan Pier when he was looking at the diet of miners. And he mm-hmm. said, well, these people put you know, six sugars in their tea and they have nothing but white bread and jam all the time. But if you were doing this job, you'd do exactly the same because they've got no other pleasures in life, right? And we know it's not as healthy as having brown bread and some, you know, yogurt, but I don't blame them at all for doing it. And so when you're taking away these people's small pleasures, albeit unhealthy ones, you're just taking away something that's making their life, which is miserable, a little bit better. You're not actually making their life any better. You know, maybe if you made their lives better, they would be less inclined to, to engage in these healthy activities. Almost certainly they would do, right? Um, but you're not making their lives better. You're just taking away something that's helping them cope with their lives and, and patting yourself on the back as if you're the champion of the poor. I think it's unconscionable. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's the probably that's yeah, it's probably one of the best ways to put it. I've heard it put. Yeah, you, you yeah, you're taking away something that, like you said, make, like, makes their life tolerable. Maybe not like tolerable, but like you know, sort of like little pleasures that get you through the day. You know, and and also, I mean, this is another thing people don't really want to mention. And I'm, I'd love to know if there's any empirical evidence for it. But you know, if you if your life is miserable you are putting you will put less value on your future years of life okay it's only very rich people who go in for cryogenic freezing now i realize it costs a lot of money to do cryogenic freezing but i bet if you ask people across the income spectrum would you like to live forever people who are poor will be less likely to say yes and people who are rich right because they've got a better they've got a better life so the extra years that you're going to gain at the end of your life from living a pure and ascetic lifestyle are simply worth less to people who are who are poor on average obviously i'm talking generalizations here but if your life is miserable you obviously you're going to be less bothered about living to 100 than somebody who's got a fantastic job and you know a wonderful house and can carry on you know doing you know going going to balls and <laughs> writing books for the rest of their lives um it seems I mean, no, no one ever really mentions it as a factor but if you I mean, this is almost an economic way of looking at it, I guess. But if you place less value on your future years of life, you're going to put more value on things that are risky, you know, and you're going to put less value on things that are healthy. Yeah. And that's perfectly rational. <laughs> that's yeah. the thing. It's perfectly rational to do that. Yeah. Yeah, you'd rather enjoy this thing now than think about that extra year that you'd have without it 20 years down the line. Yeah, Exactly. Because anyway. people just go, well, you know, what's so great about life anyway? All you do is work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, people who enjoy their work, that's fine. But a lot of people don't. Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah, I think some people forget that as well sometimes. Um, anyway, uh, Christopher, I unfortunately have to run. Um, but I uh, really want to thank you for your time. It's been a really interesting chat. Really enjoyed it. Um, is there yeah, anything, good speaking to you, mate. Is there anything you want to plug at the end? Books, articles, anything? um i'm on twitter cj snowden and my latest book is called killjoys and you can download it for free just type in my name and killjoys it should pop up i'll put the link in the description below it's on your website right yeah yeah 
yeah, I'll stick the link in the description below for people. Um, but yeah, man, thanks very much. Really appreciate it. All right, man. Take it easy. Hey, everyone. Thanks for making it right the way to the end of the podcast. I love that you tuned in this long. Do me a favor, hit subscribe because 80% of you bastards are not subscribing, but you're watching my videos. See you next time.